Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In May, the New York Times had a front page story on reading instruction, which if you think about it for a minute, is kind of strange. Stranger yet, it had a picture accompanying the story of a single professor, Lucy Calkins, who's the head of the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project and a renowned figure in literacy instruction. The reason? Calkins, after decades of this work, is substantially shifting her influential reading curriculum to embrace phonics. Still, this seems a little strange that an editor at the New York Times would put a story on reading curriculum on the front page. But there are reasons behind that decision. Because this story gets at important shifts that may change day-to-day practice in classrooms across the country. Today on the report card, Emily Hanford and Kimiana Burke join me to help unpack the story behind this story. Emily Hanford is a senior producer and correspondent at APM Reports. Her podcast, Hard Words, on why children aren't being taught to read, was a winner of the inaugural Public Service Award from the Ed Writers Association in 2019. And many will attest that Emily's work was pivotal for relaunching the Reading Wars. Kimiana Burke is a senior policy fellow at Excel in Ed, where she focuses on early literacy. Kimiana began this work as an elementary reading teacher and eventually became the state literacy director at the Department of Education in Mississippi, a state that has made outside strides in the literacy front in recent years. Emily, Kimiana, welcome to the report card. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Emily, let me start with you. You've done a lot of work in this area, and a thing that I've heard you say multiple times is that reading isn't natural. What do you mean when you say that? Well, I think that an idea that has undergirded reading instruction for quite a long time, in fact, hundreds of years, is the idea that learning to read is like learning to talk. And an essential insight of scientific research on reading over the past 40 and 50 years is that that isn't the case, that it is quite a different thing to learn to read than to learn to talk, and that reading depends very much on your oral language. That is sort of a starting point for learning how to read, but that we are not actually born with brains that are wired to read because we actually, as human beings, invented reading kind of recently just a few thousand years ago, and we've actually been on this earth for a lot longer than that. So it's this new thing that we invented, and our brains actually aren't designed how to do it. So we actually have to change our brains a bit to become good readers. And there are certain things that all human beings sort of have to do to change their non-reading brain into reading brains. And there are things that teachers can do in classrooms to help facilitate that process. There are things that kids need to learn. And there are some things that most kids really need to be taught very explicitly and directly. And in many schools, kids have not been taught those things in a sort of consistent or comprehensive way. And that is one reason we're talking about reading yet again in the United States of America. Okay. So reading isn't natural, not a process people learn naturally like Speaking, all right, so just to get the basic concepts of some of the things we're going to be talking on the board, what is phonics, whole language, and balanced literacy? Uh, Start with phonics. 
Right. So phonics is basically a way of teaching kids to read. And the basic thing you're trying to do is help kids understand the relationships between letters and sounds. What is whole language and how is that different from phonics? Well, whole language is sort of an approach to teaching reading, a really a philosophy, an idea about how reading works that came along in like the 1960s and 70s. And the basic idea in whole language is that learning to read is like learning to talk. And the kids don't need to be specifically taught how to read and that they don't necessarily need phonics instruction. They don't need to begin with being taught the relationships between letters and sounds. So uh, this would be akin to somebody saying, well, kids learn how to speak by just being around people who speak and kids can learn to read just by being around books and different texts. Is that fair? That's whole language in its purest form. Yes. Sure enough. And then balanced literacy. That sounds like the Goldilocks, right? What's balanced literacy? Right. So it's hard to argue with balanced literacy. Who doesn't want balance in all things, right? So balanced literacy is an idea that came along in the 90s and 2000s. And the idea was, well, let's have some whole language and let's have some phonics. Let's do both, which sounds like a really good idea. The basic problem is that phonics got added in to what was still essentially a system that took its grounding idea as learning to read is like learning to talk. And the kids don't really need to be explicitly taught how to do it. So we had all this research that showed that phonics instruction really helps kids become better readers. It was really hard to refute some of this research. People started adding it in, but they didn't take away the basic idea and some of the practices and ways of doing things that are really more resting upon the idea that kids teach themselves how to read and that it's like learning to talk and that if they're surrounded by good books, that's sort of the main ingredient. And there's other stuff we can do around the edges, but that's the main thing. So Kimiana, you spent time as a teacher across multiple grades and, and have done a lot of policy work on this, but can you paint the picture of what these different approaches to reading are going to look like in the classroom? Like, what do we see in classrooms that are dominated by phonics versus whole language versus balanced literacy instruction? So I want to first say that, you know, we talk so much about phonics, and I think that's become just the face of, you know, this movement around reading instruction. But there's also language comprehension and other things that other skills that students need in order to be good readers. So if we look at a classroom that has phonics instruction, it will be a classroom where the teacher is teaching the students how to decode, of course, heard, sounded out, right? Where the students have learned how to match those sounds to letters, and the teachers will have them to use their finger to go from left to right, to understand those print concepts, and to begin to decode those words, break those words down, and then also to put them back together again, right? In whole language classrooms, you may see what we have referred to as, or what's been kind of coined, three-queuing. Some of those approaches or strategies may include having students to really rely heavily on pictures to guess words or to really guess the context of what the text is trying to say. The issue with that is that as students get older and as they progress in school, the pictures are taken away. So some of those strategies by guessing, by even looking at maybe the first letter and trying to guess what the rest of the letter is or using context to try to figure out what the words are, figure out the meaning, then those things are just not sustainable. And of course, when you get to a balanced literacy classroom, it's 
And, you know, I call it really kind of trying to check a box for compliance by saying that, you know, we're still going to allow children to use these other strategies that really aren't helpful in learning how to read, especially to become a skilled reader by, you know, still having them to look at pictures and guess. But then we're also going to say we'll throw in a little phonics um, just to appease the science of reading crew. I hear the difference that you're both drawing here. One is sort of the learning by osmosis. And uh, the other approach is sort of, this is a system by which we teach instruction. You heard me in the intro sort of talk about this story about Lucy Calkins, but to give sort of the context for this, and this is going to be a tough ask. Can you just give me a thumbnail sketch of sort of the reading wars that we read about or hear about? And particularly where these philosophies get lodged such that classrooms might be dominated by one set of reading instruction or another? Well, I think the big story in the United States of America and in other parts of the English-speaking world is that what has gotten lodged pretty deeply over the past 50 or 60 years is essentially a whole language in origin approach, right? It's taken on new phrases, balanced literacy. But I think when I did that piece that you mentioned earlier called hard words, that was the big takeaway from that piece, which is that at the core of it, if you really drill down into what's going on in a lot of classrooms, reading is being taught in a similar way in schools all over the country. There's lots of different curriculum that people can use. There's lots of different details, but there's sort of an assumption about reading in the way that it works that's at the core, and that has really taken over. So it is sort of the water that everyone has been swimming in for a really long time. And when everyone's swimming in the same water, everyone's sort of nodding their head and not necessarily, you know, getting up above the water to say, oh, wait a minute, there might be another way. And I think that's one of the things that's happened to a lot of teachers in particular and policymakers and others over the past few years is their head has come up above this water that we've all been swimming in and been like, oh, there's actually something else. There's something we're missing here. There's a way that we're doing it that isn't quite right. There's lots of research. We've done this before, but people are getting their head up over on the water and saying like, ah, there's a big aha here to say there's, there's a bunch of stuff that I've assumed is true about reading that isn't, and we need to be doing something differently. And Kimiana, I'm going to guess here that a lot of that stuff we've learned falls under the umbrella of the science of reading. Take us through that. I mean, what is the basic ideas or prescriptions under the science of reading? And how is it distinct from this whole language balanced literacy approach? Right. So under the umbrella of the science of reading is, you know, we can go back to the National Reading Panel Report of 2000 where they named what we kind of call the big five, the phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And of course, some of the nuances or skills that may fall under those umbrellas, like phonological awareness. And it goes to a model, something that you mentioned before, a structured approach to teach children how to read, where you go from the simplest of skills, you build upon that to the complex. So you'll hear the words explicit, You know, I'm teaching you exactly, I'm teaching the child exactly what he or she needs to know in order to learn to read. You know, systematic, cumulative, all of those words mean that you actually have a plan for introducing the children to sounds and building on that and allowing them to 
you know, learn how those sounds, again, how they connect to letters. Also learning the vocabulary, being able to read fluently, not just being able to read fast, but being able to read with expression and not the robot reading that we've heard about where students are just calling words. So all of those things go into comprehension, but then those are all grouped under what we call the science of reading. And again, when you think about a whole language classroom, you think about a teacher who was attempting to balance um, this literacy, then you will think about opportunities where students are reading and they may have some silent reading time. They may have some leveled books that may be at their interest level or there's been this kind of arbitrary uh, measure of where students are at a certain level, but they're not going to be connected to specific skills and building on those skills um, like our decodable text may be. And again, we've heard about phonics and decoding, so there are decodable texts that go along with that to support children in that, in that, in learning that knowledge from simple to complex. Okay, so back to the introduction. Emily, who is Lucy Calkins? Lucy Calkins is a professor at Teachers College Columbia, which is a premier teachers college in the United States with a long history. And she's been there for a long time. And she started as an expert on teaching kids to write and also became known as a big expert on teaching kids to read. She wrote some very popular books about reading instruction and writing instruction back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And she now publishes curriculum. They're called Units of Study for Teaching Reading, Units of Study for Teaching Writing. And within the last few years, she added something called Units of Study for Teaching Phonics. And Lucy Calkins is a big, has been a big balanced literacy proponent. And we talked a little bit about what that means. But I think essentially, if you look at her work and you read her books, you see a very original whole language core. And she has built upon that and added to her understanding. And over the past few years, she has acknowledged the importance of phonics instruction. She will tell you that she always said phonics was important, but she wrote a quite influential book back in the early 2000s. It's a long book all about reading and there's almost nothing in it about phonics. So this is one of the things I think that sort of happened in the whole language movement is that what it takes to read the words themselves just kind of got pushed aside or forgotten. So people developed curriculum materials and approaches to reading that just sort of ignored that or took it for granted. And one of the things that Lucy Calkins, I think, has come to an understanding of the scientific research on reading and how important it is to teach kids how to read the words. And she has started adding that into her approach. So the early Calkins camp or the whole language camp, this, it sounds like, had a ton of influence about how teachers were taught to read. I mean, how much of a market share did whole language or balanced literacy have in the past few decades? Excellent question. It's hard to have a definitive answer to that because in the United States of America, we have thousands and thousands of schools. And at its core here in the United States of America, we are local control, which means that states and districts and schools and even individual teachers can sort of at the end of the day, for the most part, do what they want. I feel your pain, Emily. I feel your pain. <laughs> so uh, these ideas have been very influential. There are a number of surveys. There are other kinds of market reports that give us some idea of the actual market share of someone like Lucy Calkins, for example. She estimates that her materials or her professional development services are probably in about 
one fifth of schools in the United States, which is actually a lot in an environment where there's a lot of diversity and there's not actually a product that controls the market. And there are some other very influential people who share similar ideas with Lucy Calkins, whose products, they have an assessment system for assessing kids. And there are some estimates out there that that might be in 40% or more of schools. So these ideas have been very strong. And I think in some ways, there's brand name versions of these ideas. So Lucy Calkins is sort of a brand name version of balanced literacy to women who are professors at a, a former professor at Ohio State and at Lesley University, Gaysu Pinnell and Irene Fountas. They are also big names, just known as Fountas and Pinnell. Some people don't even know that they're real people. Fountas and Pinnell seems like a brand. It's two people who are education professors who have been selling a lot of books and products and similar ideas. And they're a brand name version of this. But I think one of the things you'll find in schools is there are sort of like sub-brand versions of this everywhere too. So the same basic ideas are being sold by a lot of publishers, a lot of experts, a lot of people who do professional development in schools. But like I said before, it's all the same ocean <laughs> of ideas. Yeah. And, you know, once these things get lodged, it's hard to displace them. But Kimiana, some of the assertion here is, hey, we have a science of reading. It shows that phonics demands a much greater role, a substantially greater role. Uh, I'm not quite sure how to handicap that, but why do so many support balanced literacy if there's such strong research pushing against it? Well, you know, I don't want to make her blush, but honestly, when Emily Hanford's hard words came out, I think that the impact of that was different. This impact reached parents. It reached community members. For so long, we've had these conversations, you know, at the State Departments of Ed or, you know, in curriculum offices and district offices and in our schools, but our parents really haven't had much of a say or haven't really been engaged in the curricula that's chosen at the school level. So when you have a documentary or a podcast such as that, that really speaks to the common everyday person who just is like, wait a minute, I've seen my child look at pictures or really kind of use pictures to understand words. Or, you know, I know that my child shouldn't be reading that well and I can hear them, you know, <laughs> they've obviously memorized, right, this sentence and they're not really decoding it. And I think that this reached such a larger audience that we begin to have this conversation on a broader level around reading instruction. So I think that, you know, there, there's so many um, just influences as it relates to vendors, as it relates to curriculum, as it relates to how teachers were even taught in their educative preparation programs, you know, how their professors were taught. And now with the academic freedom that some enjoy at the higher education level, then we continue this cycle of producing teachers who now have been taught with balanced literacy because that's what their professor preferred. And then they come into the classrooms and then, of course, they decide to teach their children how they're taught. And if they're not coming into a school where there's a leader who says, I'm committed to the science of reading and ensuring that you learn about that, then the cycle is, it just continues. Emily, I know that this is going to be another very difficult question to answer, but it's the right question. A big part of this is schools of education, right? And schools of education have folks that get tenure and keep producing teachers for a long period of time. 
how responsive would you say that sort of across the board, not just at Teachers College or other places where this is particularly ensconced, how has the response been among the faculty who teach teachers to teach? I think it's been long acknowledged that this is a big part of the problem, the way that teachers are taught or what they're not taught when they're in college. And there's been actually a decent amount of research about that and surveys about that. And I would say a decent amount of pressure on colleges of education in recent years to change. And I think some of them are. I think we're, we're starting to detect some real movement and some better understanding on the part of colleges of education. And I think that's important. I think there's a long way to go because it really was a big problem. I have to say that I think as a reporter who's been looking at this now for a few years, the teacher education side of things is really important, but it's actually such a small part of what a teacher learns or understands about something like reading that I do think that the professional development that teachers get in schools and what they learn from the materials and curriculum they have is really important to look at. And so people like Lucy Calkins, who is a professor in a school of education, but really has had a much broader influence through her books and materials, why it's really important to look at that side of things, because it is the ongoing things that teachers learn from each other, from the materials in their professional development that I think really makes the biggest difference in terms of what they teach and is the place where you can really leverage change. Because if we change teacher education programs, teachers are only doing that for year and a half or two years of their career, at the beginning of their career at best, right? So if we're really going to change the way kids are taught to read, we really need to also, or maybe even more importantly, change what they're learning once they're on the job. So it may not be the teacher training. It may be curriculum that's got to change. I think it's both. I mean, I think Kimyana can speak to this in terms of the work that she has done in Mississippi. There's a lot of elements to this, and you have to hit a lot of them if you want to make overall change, because it's very complex and what it takes to teach a kid to read and just what goes into ultimately a child's ability to become a good reader. So many things are going on, and there's so many levers that someone who's in a position of making policy needs to think about if you're trying to get an entire system to change and ultimately have that end in different results for children. So, Kimiana, I definitely want to get to those sort of policy changes in the multiple levels, but I do want to get to one particular system that I think really is a chance to just kind of illustrate how concretely different these things are. Kimiana, you mentioned the three queuing system a little bit, but can you just give me a little bit more? I mean, if you talk about, well, we're going to use three queuing how does a teacher use that system? And what do students try to do to learn to read using 3Qing? Well, I think that actually calling it a system is really giving it more credit <laughs> than it deserves. This approach is when teachers are working with students and they have books, right? And so if the student is reading, again, they're going to be using books that have pictures in them. They're going to be looking at the pictures to identify words. So if a student is learning to read from left to right and a student comes across a word that he or she does not know, then the teacher is going to prompt the student. So it's completely different than this explicit instruction that we're talking about with phonics. So the teacher is going to prompt the student, you know, use the picture to figure out a word. Let's just say, what if the word is boat and the student sees a picture of it and it looks like a boat and he says boat. And so with this approach, with 3Qing, the overall goal is really around comprehension. 
even if you're not accurate with the words, when you get to the end, do you understand or do you feel like you, you know, really understand the overall meaning of this paragraph or of this sentence? And so students are actually being taught to leverage these different approaches or or systems like by guessing or even memorizing, or again, looking at the pictures or looking at the beginning of words or looking at a sentence and the teacher saying, okay, if you're looking at this sentence in context, what would be a good word that would fit here? And it's amazing, isn't it? Like, it's amazing that, you know, when you think about this, this explicit instruction or this approach to teaching phonics, But you think about all of this work that the teacher has to do to do the opposite of that, to teach children to guess. It seems like it's a it's a lot more challenging to do those things than to actually just teach children, you know, with this phonics routine. And Emily, has research shown that some of these particular things, uh, three cueing or other systems do or do not work? We've talked about the science of reading. Have we evaluated these things? Do we know? Yes. So I think the real game changer in this whole conversation about reading is the scientific research that started being done kind of back in the 1970s and 80s. So this is like cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, eventually psychologists who got really interested in this mystery, honestly, that we didn't know we we didn't know the answer to, which is how do we read? How do we do that? How do our brains read? And then so and so how do we learn how to do that? And all these little things got revealed through interesting experiments and studies that were done through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And what Kimiana was just talking about with the three queuing system, the issue with the three queuing system is what scientists have figured out about how you go from having that brain that doesn't know how to read to the brain that actually can read really, really well. Because even though we weren't born with brains that are wired to read, We can, many of us become really good readers, right? And we can actually store the printed form of words in our memory. We haven't memorized them like pictures, but we do this really amazing thing where we see the word and we like in an instant, we know what that word is. We can, we identify, we look at the spelling pattern and we know immediately what that word is. And the way that happens is that you look carefully at a word and you sound it out And you associate the pronunciation of the word with the spelling of the word and the meaning of the word. And when those three things get linked in your brain, that word makes its way into your brain, basically, and it gets stored there and it's available for you immediately. And you can't even prevent yourself from reading it. So scientists can like flash words in front of your face and consciously, you don't have any idea that you just read the word and they can prove with these little things that they do before and after that you just read that word but you had no idea that you did. But the problem with cueing is that it encourages children to do things other than look carefully at printed words, sound them out, and see if that's a word that they know in spoken language. And if you've ever been around a little child learning how to read, you will hear the moment that a child gets it. They go, paint, 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 painting, painting, mommy, that's painting. And suddenly they've made the connection between the spelling, the pronunciation, and the meaning. They've got to do that a few times. And then that word is there for them. When they become a reader, they don't look at the word painting and sound it out laboriously. In an instant, they know what it is. But what Kimiana was just talking about, little kids are actually being taught these strategies for how to read the words before they know how to do it that take their attention away from looking carefully at the words and sounding them out and connecting them to something that they know in speech. 
And that is actually getting in the way of kids becoming good readers. And some kids, many kids can get over that, right? They're taught some phonics, they get enough experience, they figure it out. But some kids don't. They sort of rely on those habits and they never really become very good readers. And they sort of, the way reading scientists have described it to me is they sort of limp along as readers. They're sort of slightly crippled in their reading ability. That's probably not the right word to use. But, and that's what's happening to a lot of kids out there. And one of the things that's really interesting about the research is probably about half of us will learn to read pretty easily. Like we just happen to have brains where this just isn't that hard for us and a little bit of instruction and a lot of experience with books and we can be, become pretty good readers. Maybe our spelling won't be that good. Some of us will have become very good sellers. Some of us won't be very good spellers. But then there's about half of us for whom that's actually not going to be very easy. It's not going to come quickly. And we're really going to need someone to really show us this system quite a bit. And sometimes it can just be that like you're reading on your dad's lap every single night and that's enough. And the, your dad's, you know, sounding out the words and pointing to them and the kid figures it out. But a lot of kids aren't getting that, right? So we have, to, you know, I think one of the most important things to understand is at the end of the day, this is really an equity issue. Some kids rely more on school than others to learn the things that they need to learn in all kinds of things, right? Some kids really don't depend on school as much as others. And it can have to do with the resources in their home or their sort of just natural abilities to learn certain things really easily and quickly. And there are some kids who just don't learn this reading thing easily and quickly, and they may not have the resources at home, someone reading to them a ton every night, or someone who notices that they're having a problem and can do something like get a book out of the library and teach the kid themselves or hire a tutor for $85 an hour, three days a week, which is what some kids require. So it becomes an equity issue because there are many kids who struggle with reading. Many of them are from affluent homes, but if you're from an affluent home and you're struggling with reading, chances are a parent's going to notice that and be able to do something about it. And then there's a whole bunch of kids for whom that is not true. And that's really where the rubber meets the road on this issue at the end of the day. So to kind of repeat back what I've heard, part of what the science of reading says is here's how we teach children to read. And some of these other approaches actually teach children to appear to read, but don't directly instruct them in the way our brain reads words. Am I following? Yeah, your brain is actually very habit forming. And if you are taught these strategies, it can become kind of a hard habit to break. And I guarantee you go out there and talk to people who are reading tutors and work with middle school kids and high school kids who are struggling readers. And many of them have this crutch where they look at the first letter or the first couple, they look at the last letter, they take a swing at it, they skip the words, they guess the words, they look at the pictures, they think about what would make sense, they just come up with a word and they sort of skim their way through reading. And very fascinating demonstrations have been done. If you're given a text, there can just be a few words that you miss in a text. And if you just miss a few key words, your understanding of that text has completely broken down. I had a middle school teacher who talked about one reading passage where it said that in 1939, the Poles invited the Germans into their country. That's what the kid thought it said. What it said is they invaded their country. There's a big difference between the Poles inviting the Germans or the Germans invading. Your whole understanding of the beginnings of World War II has changed based on that one word. So that's where this stuff really ends up being a problem with reading comprehension. So you have kids who, you know, they can read some of the words and people will say, well, they know how to decode. They know how to read the words. 
but they're missing enough of the words because they haven't had this good habit. They haven't gotten all these words into their brain and they're missing enough of them that they don't know what the hell is going on a lot of the time. And reading is slow and laborious and confusing and they don't really like it. So they don't do it that much. So they don't get better at it. And it becomes this whole downward cycle. And then you have some kids who get on this sort of upward cycle really early and we just need to get kids on the upward cycle early. And what the research shows is that we can get many more kids on that upward cycle. Some people are always going to be slow readers. This is always going to be a challenge for them. It's just like there's just this distribution of ability. And like some people who are really, really smart have a hard time learning how to read. That's another thing that I just think is really important to understand here. This is, does not have to do with intelligence. Super smart people have a hard time learning how to read. But most people can be taught how to do it and can be taught how to do it fairly well. Some of us are going to be much better than others. But we're not doing the work to give all kids the same chance to be good readers. Okay, we're gonna take a break now and do the section that we do on the report card called Grade It. So this is pretty simple. I'm gonna throw out a topic. I'm gonna to give it to one of you. The other one can weigh in after. But I simply want you to give an A to F grade and a few words of explanation why. Rapid fire. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yes. All right, first, Emily, to you. Education journalism. Oh my God, you're going to get me in trouble so fast. B minus. And a few words as to why? I think there's some fantastic education journalism going on out there, but it's uneven and there needs to be more of it. And it's not the fault of the journalists in many cases. More needs to be invested by news organizations to do this work well. Fair enough. Kimiana, graphic novels. B plus. B plus. Why? B plus for, especially my brother grew up just reading comics, but love the pictures that went along with it. And I think the same as novels, we, you know, as we grow older, that's an escape for a lot of us. Uh, and I love the way that it shows how, you know, shows the action of the novel. So, yeah, I like it. Emily, literacy programs for the incarcerated. <laughs> Wow. Well, I'm going to say B. I don't think a whole lot is known about the quality of literacy programs for the incarcerated. I guess the reason I'm going to say B is I think very sadly, some people who don't know how to read very well get their first instruction when they're in prison. And that is terrible, but it's good that some of them are getting it. But I think we need the science of reading for prison instruction, people who teach in prisons too. Kimiana, podcasts. A plus plus. That's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can be very informative. And again, the audience is probably going to be wide reaching and it's accessible. You know, all of those things that, that we want for everyone, for all stakeholders. Emily, researchers' ability to explain their own research to journalists. <laughs> oh no. He's trying to get you in trouble. C plus. C plus. We'll just leave it at that. Researchers, you have some work cut out. Some get an A. Some get an A. Some get an A. Fair enough. There are A's out there. Fair enough. Kimiana, HBCUs. Oh, I mean, how much higher can you go than an A? I'm a graduate of the Jackson State University. So I love HBCUs and the opportunities and, you know, community 
that it provides for students. Fantastic. Emily, school spelling bees. Oh, I might have to say A because I loved them. I don't know. I love watching them. I don't think spelling is taught well in schools, though, either, unfortunately. Spelling needs to be taught with more of an attention towards the way the English language works rather than just giving kids a bunch of spelling tests and having them kind of do well because they figure out on their own the relationship among them. I mean, I won my elementary school spelling bee. I think this is the only time I've ever been able to tell somebody that as an adult. So, yep. Kimiana, Mississippi schools. Mississippi schools, I will say C. I think we still have a lot of work to do, but in the words of Dr. Carrie Wright, we are moving in the right direction. Emily, the state of investigative journalism. Oh, well, B, because there's some really, really good stuff going on, but again, there's not enough of it, and these organizations need to invest more. Kimiana, educators' understanding of the reading wars. Well, I think now it may be at a B minus because of the exposure through podcasts and, you know, other organizations that have really like the Reading League and others who are just really making it front and center. So I'll say B minus. There's still a lot of work to do there as well. All right. Emily, I asked Kimmy on about podcasts. So fair is fair. The education advocacy scene. Broadly speaking. Oh my gosh. Well, Kamiana said podcasts were A++. I'm not sure I can say that about education advocacy. I don't know. That's like, I can't answer that one. That's too broad. There's too many, too broad. Too broad. Can I narrow? Uh, I can't narrow. Okay. We'll wrap the last grade with an incomplete. Let's move a little further. I want to talk about some of the folks who are listening and may feel sort of defensive about the way they learn to teach or, hey, you know, this is, I'm not getting a fair shake. So let me use this quote from Tim Shanahan, who is a professor emeritus in education at University of Illinois, Chicago. And this may be somewhat out of context, but he says, look, phonics is marginally better, referring to whole language instruction, and that most kids can learn to read with little or no phonics. Kimiana, how do you respond to that? response? Well, and I really respect Tim Shanahan. I know that I I probably need to start by saying that. I believe that when we pull back the hood or look under the hood, that a lot of the other approaches to teaching, the guessing, again, you know, it goes back to equity. It goes back to access. You know, I would like to know for whom this is true, you know, for which group is this really true? Because there's such a a wide gap between the performance of white students and black students and Hispanic students and, and of course, low-income students. And I think that some of that, you know, goes back to access, access to quality teachers, to quality, you know, resources, materials, support, interventions, those types of things. So I think I would respond to that by saying that I think that that statement may be situational at best. And Emily, when you come to this, you talked earlier about how this is an equity issue. Is that the primary reason to point this out? For somebody who said, Emily, what's the big deal? What's the strongest case to say this is a huge deal? 
what is a huge deal? Phonics? The systematic and appropriate way we teach reading. I think the reason it's a big deal is because learning in school relies on reading. Everything gets down to reading. And at the end of the day, if you're a good reader, you can actually teach yourself a lot of different things, almost anything. I mean, it's probably the most important thing that it's the most important thing. It's the foundational for all learning. It's the first, aside from like learning how to get along with other children, it's really the primary task we are asking our little children who enter kindergarten and first grade to do. And so much rides on whether they're successful with that first task. And there are a very large number of kids who aren't successful at it. They might ultimately be successful, but we're making it really hard on them because we're not just teaching it to them. So I think at the end of the day, if there is a skill, reading is a skill, and if there is a skill that is so foundationally important, why would we not teach it to every child? There may be some kids who don't need to be taught it, but there's tons of research that shows teaching kids how their written language works is going to benefit even kids who may be able to figure a lot of that out on their own. They become better spellers, for example. So I think at the end of the day, when we look at schools, we just have to think about what are the essential things that kids really need to know and be able to do? And we should teach those things well to all children if we have a hope that schools can play a role in creating a more equal society. You know, do we want schools to do that? Because if we want schools to do that, then we can't take a pass on teaching kids these most important things because what happens in a system like that is some kids will learn it pretty well and other kids won't. And the some and the other reflects just historic patterns of who has advantages and who doesn't in this society. And if we want to change that at all, we've got to change this reading thing. Kimiana, I want to ask you some things about Mississippi. But first, as an entry into that, I want to read a quote from The Economist. It says, Mississippi, often a laggard in social policy, has set an example here. In a state notorious for its low reading scores, the Mississippi State Legislature passed new literacy standards in 2013. Since then, Mississippi has seen remarkable gains. Its fourth graders have moved from 49th of 50 states to 29th on the National Assessment of Education Progress. In 2019, it was the only state to improve its scores. And for the first time since measurement began, Mississippi's pupils are now average readers, a remarkable achievement in such a poor state. What happened in Mississippi? Literacy happened. You know, I always say, I think we were at the point where it was go big or go home. We had elected a governor, a former governor, Phil Bryant, who is dyslexic. And he happened to reach out to former governor Jeb Bush, who had undertaken this work in Florida during his governorship in in Florida, they passed a reading law in 2002. So Mississippi's reading law is fashioned after Florida's every word, except for, I think, the portfolio for a good cause exemption. But I think that for us, it was the first time that there was a statewide, state-led approach to, and a comprehensive approach to improving reading instruction. We always say what gets measured gets done. And we begin to implement the law to all of the specifics of the law. And I was just fortunate enough to lead that initial effort during those years. 
I think for us, it was, we had what I call the big three. We had a a governor who um, was a champion. We had our legislature, our Senate ed chair, House ed chair, who would come across the street to to the department and have conversations with us about the law. Even the governor would have conversations with me about, hey, what kind of calls are you getting? (laughs) And of course, a state chief. So we had those three who were committed to it. And our state chief was able to do some things infrastructure-wise within the Department of Education to really respond to the law. We didn't have an Office of Early Childhood, right? So we're saying we want all children to learn how to read by third grade. We didn't have an Office of Early Childhood. We didn't have an Office of Intervention Services, anyone to answer calls about dyslexia or interventions. We also didn't have an Office of Professional Development. All of those things were created within the first couple of years. And even my role as K-3 literacy director that was born out of the passage of this law was was expanded to K-12 literacy director because we wanted to do these things across the state and, of course, across grade levels. So I think that, you know, and of course, we not only said we want children to learn to read by the end of third grade, we're going to help you get there. So for the first time, our department put boots on the ground in the form of literacy coaches, and we placed them in our lowest performing schools. And so they worked alongside teachers. You know, all of the things that we talk about, the professional development, we adopted one professional development for the science of reading for the state. State paid for it out of funds that were appropriated for the law. And we ensured that not only our teachers, but also our administrators, which is extremely important, went through this professional development on the science of reading training. And it was just really a coordinated effort that was led by the coordination of this division of literacy that I was leading. And we began to get buy-in. So for the first time, our department was not seen as like this auditing agency. You know, normally, you know, people say, oh my God, the state department is coming, like the whole state department is coming to our school. Now it was, how can I get one of these state department literacy coaches? Because they're making a difference in schools. So I think that all of those things that were put into the law, all of those components that led to this comprehensive approach allowed us to, for the first time as a state, begin speaking the same language and having the same ambition to get students to reading. And it was about including parents in the conversation, teachers, administrators, and other stakeholders as well. So give me, I just want to ask, I think you talked about the literacy coaches, which makes sense, but you can do a lot of passing laws at the state level and not actually change what goes on in classrooms. What was the key in Mississippi to building that bridge and how successful do you think you were? Well, I think it was because, again, this was front of mind for our state agency and we were responsible for implementation and we took that very seriously. This was, again, an office was created to address all of these different components of the literacy law. So I think that, again, when there's a focus and there's accountability, like, you know, I I know people always call Mississippi the hospitality state. I mean, but when I say our chief academic officer would look at the printout from the vendor for professional development and say, wow, okay, I see that this district hasn't sent any teachers to professional development and would call the district superintendent and say, hey, I see you haven't sent any teachers. Is there a reason why? (laughs) You know, right? We didn't leave anything up to chance. And it was, we would have, you know, standing meetings around the progress 
We had a Mississippi RECU panel. Also, we have a panel that's a part of our law that advises our department on our implementation strategies. I'll say this. You know, a lot of people really talk about what happened in 2019 when we were the only state that made those gains. We actually had a five-point skill score gain in 2015, which was only two years after we passed the law. The gain in 2019 was four skill score points, right? So we had quietly here, we were screaming at the time, like, oh my gosh, we're making gains. And it was, you know, once you begin to experience some success like that, so not just nationally, but we had schools in school districts that had never seen any success. They were seeing their third grade students pass this third grade gate that we have, like at 100%. They would have the media to come out to schools to do a celebration. Once you begin to experience that type of success, you don't want to go back. Uh, and you know what it looks like to be supported and to, to just learn more about how to teach children how to read then it, it was the buy-in. It was us going directly to parents, explaining to them what this meant for their children, but then also how we were going to help them and help their teachers. And I'll say this one last thing about Mississippi in that moment. I always say that it, it had to be Mississippi. It had to be. Because it's always been okay. It's been okay for us to be 50th. It's been okay for us to always be at the bottom as it relates to education. And for other states, it's just been okay. It's been okay for the, you know, the Connecticut or the New Jersey or, the, you know, our Northeastern states to be in the top 10. But when Mississippi made gains, and again, you didn't say we're number one in the country. You're saying we're still 29th. But when we made those gains and was the only state to do that, it became not okay, you know? And I think that for some, you know, I began getting those calls. Hey, what are y'all really, what are y'all doing? You know, and when we say, well, you know, people have been talking about the science of reading. And so that really began this conversation around what is Mississippi doing? And I think that now, even for us, it's no longer okay for us to be last. And I think that it had to happen. Emily, we led this off with the article about Lucy Calkins, who we seem to have left long behind in this podcast. But my question is now to compare Mississippi with Lucy Calkins, right? Lucy Calkins is kind of bringing more phonics in. She has, you know, the New York Times was saying, wow, she's sort of backtracking now on where she's been. My question is, is the shift that Lucy Calkins has made what happened in Mississippi? Or should we not take that shift as a sufficient change for the curriculums that have been so commonplace across schools across the nation? Something that I actually don't know the answer to is how prevalent Lucy Calkins and her curriculum is in Mississippi, which is an interesting question. One thing I just think I'll say about your question is the key here is not whether schools add phonics. The key here, I think, is whether they take away the cueing stuff that Kimiana was talking about right? So yes, you need to have phonics. That's one component. That's just a way of teaching kids the relationships between letters and sounds, which is something that your brain has to understand for you to become a good reader. But we've got to take away the teaching practices and the leveled books and the assessment systems that are encouraging teachers to teach kids to do things other than look carefully at the words and sound them out. And that's replete all over the place. And I think that is the real aha that Lucy Calkins had. 
because Lucy Calkins added phonics before she understood the science of reading. She had a phonics curriculum back in 2018, and I think she was just under pressure and saw an opportunity, honestly. Schools are buying phonics programs to have a phonics program. And then I think partly the reporting that I did and a lot of other people have written really accessible things about what the science is. And Lucy Calkins started paying attention to that, I think partly because I called her out about some of this stuff in a 2019 documentary. And she started reading it and understanding it. And so the key for Lucy Calkins wasn't adding phonics. The key for Lucy Calkins is taking away the cueing. And she is rewriting her units of study for teaching reading and selling a new version of it. And the difference between the old version and the new version, one of the big differences is she's taken out. She says she's taking out all that cueing stuff. Kimiana, I want to close out by asking you, you've made progress and you were part of that progress in Mississippi. There's progress out there in states on this. How far have we come and how far do we have to go? Well, I'll say this, this legislation, this legislative session, and I know that some are still going on. We've had about eight states. So in my role with the Foundation for Excellence in Education, I work with states across the country. Um, those that have already passed the laws, I work with their state ed agencies on implementation. And for those who are considering, policymakers who are considering adopting or strengthening early literacy laws, I work with them by testifying committee or, or work with them on bill language. So again, to date, this year, there have been about eight states that have really passed, uh, looked at comprehensive approaches to improving literacy outcomes. And the one thing that we've seen that has now become a trend um, I know we talked earlier about the role of higher education is that states like Tennessee and North Carolina, they've included higher education in their literacy laws, in their third grade literacy laws. The role of higher ed and even the coursework that, that candidates must, of course, be exposed to prior to graduating. So I think it's great for the first time, I think in 10 years, the organization said they have been working with Alaska for nine years before I came on board, but Alaska just recently passed a comprehensive literacy law, Kentucky, Missouri, Connecticut. So those states that, again, we've historically said, oh, well, it seems like they're doing fine, but they are really taking a look under the hood and saying, we're doing fine for some kids. That's no longer acceptable. Massachusetts is doing that, for example. Massachusetts has always been looked to as, as the leading light, and uh, their State Department of Education is looking under the hood and saying, it's unacceptable. A lot of our kids aren't learning to read, and there's a reason for that, and it's because they're not being taught. Well, Kimiana and Emily, thanks for your work, and thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Kimiana and Emily. We'll include a link to some of their work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.